This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Bosch, one of the hosts on this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Michelle Nario Redmond about their new book, Ableism, The Causes and Consequences of Disability Prejudice. This book is the first comprehensive volume to integrate social scientific literature on the origins and manifestations of prejudice against disabled people, but it also goes further synthesizing the impacts of such prejudice and promoting disability justice. Dr. Nario Redmond, congratulations on your publication and welcome to the show. Thank you. We're glad um, to be here. Thank you so much for being here. So uh, we'll get started with a little introduction. Um, you are a professor of psychology at Hiram College. Did I say that right? Yes. Great. Hiram College in Ohio. And you specialize in stereotyping, prejudice, and disability studies. One might pick up some other aspects of your identity from the dedication to your book, which I found really moving. So just tell us a bit more about yourself and how you came to write Ableism, The Causes and Consequences of Disability Prejudice. Sure. So I'm a first-generation Latina um, person who went to a school called the University of Kansas, where it was all about no research without action, and we studied a variety of my marginalized or disadvantaged groups uh, as part of the social psychology program, but no one really focused on disability as a minority group membership. And it's ironic because we had some of the pioneers of disability studies in an adjacent wing, Beatrice Wright, who I would see walking around, but really never took any classes and had really no particular interest in disability issues. And as many, I think, of my colleagues have experienced. It's the personal became the political. I gave birth to my first child in 1995, and she happened to be born with a physical and neurological condition called spina bifida. And, you know, we weren't diagnosed. This was all very new to me. And I was learning about the impairment at the same time, trying to sort of stay connected to my scholarship and work and happened to go to a conference where uh, Carol Gill, who's another pioneer psychologist, clinician in disability studies, and learned early on about disability identity and was just sort of blown away that I hadn't been exposed to this. And I decided, man, I need to make uh, this part of my raising of this kid to be um, unashamed of who she is, to be a, a proud disabled woman. And even as I was sort of just grappling with what that meant for me as a new mom and how my own feelings about disability may have been misinformed. So, you know, fast forward, I was doing research on stereotypes and group identity in graduate school. And once she was born and I got my first academic position, I realized, you know, this could be a professional coup. Nobody was really looking at disability as a group membership particularly from an inner group or social identity perspective. And so I just sort of started slowly working with undergraduates at Reed College, collecting data on, and they happen to be disabled students themselves, on things like 
existential fears of becoming disabled, on disability identity, on the stereotypes, the cultural stereotypes and beliefs we have about the whole group. Whether we endorse them as true, we still grow up with these media stories, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and all kinds of language that's associated with disability. So I started collecting articles and, um, you know, one might even say hoarding them and <laughs> given the opportunity to teach a disability studies class for the first time in 2001, you know, really found that there was a, a, a big gap in, in what we were doing as educators and in, in not including disability as part of the multicultural landscape, as part of the intergroup literature. And, and so I just kept kind of collecting these articles and ended up doing a review of Rosalind Darling's book on disability identity and the the action editor or the editor that solicits a new publication said, you know, you, you should really write a book. And I said, well, I don't have that much of my own research except these pieces. And, and then I realized, but wait a minute, I was collecting all of this stuff on disability attitudes and prejudice and insider uh, experiences of coping with stigma. And so I pitched it to that particular publisher and they actually um, turned turned it down because they had an, an existing reader out there and thought it would be competing. I won't mention the publication <laughs> publisher, but the action editor, the person that was listening said, you know what, I know this is going to find a home. Don't give up. And so I, I shopped it around and it landed on... Um, the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues, Contemporary Social Issues Series. And they were all about sort of this topic that very few in our fields really were talking about, much less systematically studying. And so that started in 2014. It took me about five years working as a solo author to pull it all together. I had a sabbatical and then it sort of like I had to figure out to make it happen when I wasn't off from teaching. Uh-huh. And then, and then in, the, in the moments of the dark, the darkest moments of working on the book were when I was sort of toward the end and realized I, I could use some help. You know, we're all interdependent. We, ca- we need each other. And I reached out to my colleague, Arielle Silverman, who's also a PhD social psychologist, to see if she would want to co-author the chapter on the insider's experience. And she grew up with congenital blindness and we had been to some conferences together and it just became this amazing collaboration where we, we sort of crossed the finish line together. And then while she was sort of taking the lead on that chapter, I finished, you know, what do we do about all of this prejudice, all of these various sources of prejudice? How do we, how do we address its undoing? But that's sort of the short story of how I became involved and, and, and how along the way my daughter has really benefited from attending conferences and learning about disability as a social creation. And uh, I'm proud to say that she is now 26 years old and um, doing really well, is working, graduated from college and is, you know, herself interested in disability pride and justice. And so that does my heart good. Yes, mine too, just listening. And thank you so much for weaving that together with some of the uh, black box, if you will, of how writing a book actually gets done. I'm sure that some listeners will really appreciate hearing that and understanding um, the stages that it goes through. So um, getting into some of the content then, um, the back cover of the book succinctly defines ableism, which we should of course do, right? as a prejudice against disabled people stereotyped as incompetent and dependent. At the same time, the introduction begins by excerpting this poem by Maria Palacios naming ableism. And then it invokes social psychology's threefold conceptualization of ableism as affective or attitudinal, behavioral, and cognitive. 
So hopefully the fact that ableism is at once straightforward and yet complex is already clear to listeners just from the setup for this opening question. But please take this um, this thread up a bit and explain uh, what ableism is, why defining it is important as well as challenging. Yes. Um, and there's another layer to that, too, because some people prefer the term disableism. And, and in the U.S., that has... N- had less traction. So I'll try to cover that too. But so the back book, I I had to look at that again, when you brought that up, because I thought, surely I didn't curtail it that short. So it's actually (laughs) part of a a broader sentence that talks about disabled people are stereotyped clearly as a variety of things, uh, dependent, helpless, incompetent, but that ableism is really a range of responses and reactions that include things like fear, um, contempt, pity, but also possibly some benevolent, uh, quote unquote, positive reactions where people experience inspiration upon seeing someone who may exceed their expectations or stereotypes of the group. And so I do find that that um, traditional conceptualization psychology is all about how we think, beliefs, um, how we feel, affect, and um and our behaviors. So these ABCs, cognition, affect, and behaviors is a nice way to think about the fact that we may believe that a a particular group um, has certain characteristics and those beliefs can certainly influence our expectations uh, and what we come to find surprising when we see a disabled person working or in a romantic relationship or a parent. But then we also have these emotional reactions Um, knee-jerk reactions often that include things like disgust reactions or pity, feeling sorry for people, or, um, you know, just wanting to do certain actions, helping, uh, often unwanted helping is, is, is something people complain about or, or avoiding, which is another behavior that, that people often, you know, recount as, you know, why am I being avoided? Why do people stand so much further away from me or avoid engaging in conversation or from, and and then there are hate crimes and things that are even more violent action wise. So it does include, and prejudice is even a broader construct that we can think about in terms of these beliefs, these emotional reactions, and then these behaviors. And I think several of my colleagues who are in fields like sociology or um, in the humanities, think more broadly too about narratives and how the society and levels of the economy and politic are involved in disabling people and keeping them from participating as equal citizens. Um, but I find the distinction between disabledism and ableism, at least for me, one that is less helpful because I guess in my training, there's two sides of the same coin. When we are prejudiced against a group of people simply because they're labeled or have um, this membership as disabled, we, we treat them differently. And so that's the definition of differential treatment is prejudice toward a particular group. But part of that is also then this preferencing of one's own groups or, or one's uh, in groups or those that aren't disabled, if you don't happen to experience disability, as as the other side of the coin, that if you're demonizing or dehumanizing or treating as inferior a group of people simply because they're disabled, that can mean and often does mean that you're preferentially hiring um, on privileging non-disabled ways of being in the world, creating you know, sidewalks that aren't accounting for the fact that people roll or um, curricula in schools. I know you focus a lot on education that thinks there's such a thing as an average student and that we can um, design studies or design our, our courses in ways that forget that we have jagged learning profiles. We have gifts and we have challenges and, and that maybe we need to be thinking much more broadly about human variation. So... I th- that's just in a nutshell how I sort of have come to more simply define this this form of prejudice against this particular group of people, which resonates and is similar to some other prejudices, like prejudice against people who 
maybe minority uh, gender or uh, sexual minorities. In fact, it's very similar in that way in that you're often the only person in your family that experiences disability, not always, um, but oftentimes. And so you don't necessarily have that community of family and, and members of the broader community that are there to sort of teach you how important it is to be a part of this group. So there's some similarities and differences with some of the other uh, prejudicial forms. So that's a great segue into the next question, because I, I, what I wanted to kind of get at here is um, I feel like people who don't um, identify as disabled or don't engage with the disability community um, typically haven't considered how kind of fundamental and pervasive um, concepts like disability, ability, um, capability, capacity are to our everyday lives. And by our lives, I mean humans and other beings with whom we share this planet. So in chapter two, you delve into the evolutionary and existential theories that might explain the origins of ableism. And um, in particular, you point out, and I'm quoting here, that what it means to be fully human is often described in terms of abilities, language, self-reflection, independence. You also mentioned rationality and self-awareness later. Um, and, and these abilities distinguish humans as unique, right? Unique from other animals. That quote, like this chapter, seems to identify fear of the other as a fundamental mechanism in ableism. To what extent do you agree with that or would you put it differently? Yeah, when I saw that question, I think that that seems almost a little overgeneralized because I know people do have a fear of the unfamiliar, uh, which, but that implies to some extent that if we become familiar, if only we have family members and friends who are you know, out as disabled, then we get to know them um, in, in all of their complexities and, and we can mitigate our fears. But these, this particular chapter, chapter two, tries to re recognize or acknowledge that some of these fears may be more hardwired, may be evolutionary holdovers. That's not to say that we can't override them with our intentionality and, and desire to not be prejudiced, but that we may come into this world wired to learn things unconsciously, to have fears of that which um, is threatening, like the fact that we all will die someday right. and we don't want to really think about that. Right. And when it comes to ability or disability, that we are frail, we are vulnerable, we experience damage and decline and often People don't want to think about those things. And so one way to do that is to be prejudiced toward those or to avoid those or treat them differently who remind us of our human vulnerability or maybe even our, our animalistic tendencies. So I found it really interesting that you brought up um, how the series and maybe you in particular focus on the fact that we are humans, but we share the planet with other living creatures. And in fact, we are animals ourselves. Mm -hmm. But for eons, we've often, um, the species has considered itself in, in texts and in teachings to be superior to other animals. And I think that plays out in really particular ways when it comes to how we treat disabled people. To the extent that we view them not just as other, but as animal. And you can imagine some disabled people do experience or reveal or are, you know, they may leak bodily fluids. They may walk with a certain kind of limp that may signal disease that is somehow a trigger to avoid if we, in fact, have evolved a tendency to be pathogen avergent uh, as a way to keep us safe from mating with those who may be less than healthy. So so I'm, I was trying to come up with ways to incorporate that evolutionary psychology literature and terror management theory, which is, you know, these existential fears of our human vulnerability and our animalist, our creatureliness mm -hmm. in ways that sort of may be a little more complicated to undo if in fact they are so hardwired. What I found really interesting is that 
there is some new research on dehumanization that has looked at different forms of dehumanization, that people who are thought to be more animalistic, who are lacking certain traits considered to be uniquely human, like the ones you mentioned, rationality, or having language or morality, um, may evoke prejudice that is more around the, the, the animalistic um, realm, I should say, like taming. We should tame those on this uh, spectrum to behave more civilly. Mm-hmm. We should, uh, we, we, it doesn't matter if we deny pain medication to those who are incarcerated or not turn on the heat in the winter because they have no feelings for cold or temperature differences or pain because we assume they're less than human because to be human is to have these characteristics. And that's what we see a lot in some of the hate crime literature too, that we, we do see guards and, and people in prison and incarcerated in nursing homes and other places treated as though they are subhuman and animalistic, which then makes me wonder, well, what if we claimed our animalistic natures and recognized that instead of being afraid of embracing our, our um, vulnerabilities to injury and decline, would we be less needing to differentiate and discriminate? But then the other side of that is like, what about those who deny humans um, characteristics that are considered not uniquely human, but in this literature, essentially human? So this is a little more broad characteristics. Um, I'm trying to recall what they are. I actually popped some of them up that may then um, like freedom to be free, to be, uh, let's see. Well, suffice it to say, I'm not able to sort of retrieve those now, but sort of there's the the dehumanizing uh, approaches to treating people uh, as animals. And then there are some approaches that dehumanize folks by treating them as if they're unfeeling machines. Mm. We also see this with treatment of people with psychiatric conditions like schizophrenia or autism and people who wear certain kinds of prosthetics or who may have bionic limbs they may be treated more like unfeeling machines and may be more likely to experience victimization in the form of um, hate crimes or things that are uh, a stealing of their prosthetics or um, yeah, stuff like that. There's, there was a story once of a, a, a hate crime that targeted people with epilepsy who may have seizures when they get exposed to certain bright lights or uh, images And they targeted this support group for epileptics by hacking into the site so that when people went in, they were going to see this strobe light effect that would trigger a seizure. And, you know, again, is that a a form of dehumanization that harkens back to perceptions of certain groups as machine-like? And so we, you know, save for those people a different form of ableism. Super interesting just right. to think about that, given also that, um, you know, we have wild advances in technology happening right now related to like kind of making us cyborgs. And I'm just mm-hmm. thinking there of like the anti aging science that's happening. And there's also like the Neuralink uh, idea from Elon Musk. So, yeah, that's and that's kind of what I mean too. Just that these are such pervasive concepts. When you actually really start thinking about them, they have all kinds of implications. Right, so. and just to stay with that for a second, like yeah. this idea that people, some people may become cyborgs. In fact, disabled people may be on the cutting edge of some of this to the extent that we're part human, part animal, part maybe a pig valve if need right. be, part machine. And so they're sort of at this leading edge of having maybe transhuman abilities. Yeah. And then how is that going to play out when they may be at an advantage right. for doing certain things or having certain superhuman abilities? And will that open up understanding or will that create more division? The, I, I looked at these machine-like characteristics of so things oh, like people who are considered to lack empathy and um, there's a, 
a, a disability studies scholar, M. Rimu Yargao, I think is how she pronounces, or they pronounce their name. And they talk about how we talk about autism as high and low functioning, and that that may contribute to this metaphor of autistics being you know, gaming personal computers with a few missing processing chips, right? Uh, yes. ribbonless and keyless or cordless typewriters. And, you know, if we're looking at certain types of people as more machine-like, would that predict different kinds of treatment than the, the types of prejudice that is reserved for people that are thought to be more animalistic, that need to be caged or that need to be, um, you know, somehow trained and controlled as if they were animals. And some of that has yet to be tested. It's, it's just in the realm of theory. So um, I feel like I could keep, I like, I also now want to mention like Octavia Butler's parable of the sower, right. As an example of like this sort of superhuman ability that winds up being at the cutting edge of Mm -hmm. civilization, ironically, but um I will proceed with my next question. <laughs> um, so, but it's it's definitely, you know, related. The next chapter that I kind of wanted to just go through is called Justifying Ableism Through Ideologies and Language, right? Um, as you introduced it in the book, this part, quote, examines how clashing expectations about the problems of disability completely alter the solutions considered appropriate. And that's just, you know, a small piece of sort of the, the, the preview of the chapter. Mm-hmm. But here's where I hope to highlight for folks the link between this social psychology book on ableism and education, because um, it begins with two excerpts on applied behavior analysis or ABA for short, which has a while has for a while now been very aligned with the ideologies of special education in the U.S., I would say. So um, I can actually, I can read them if you have the book in front of you. You can read them whatever you prefer. Yeah, so the first quote I do, it's, um, and, and I loved that quote, and I know that you're going to ask me why I included it. I'll <laughs> yeah. read it first. At first I was like, why did I include that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> So the quote, the first one, if I can get to that page, is uh, about ABA or applied behavior analysis. The core theory of ABA was that a therapist, quote, forcing a change in a child's outward behavior would, quote, affect an inward psychological change. Lovas feels that by holding any mentally crippled child accountable for his behavior and, two, forcing him to act normal he can push the child toward normalcy. And so just sticking with that one quote sort of illustrates this the chapter title, that it, as long as we can justify the treatment um, that we have or the, the ideas that we have about a particular group of people, you know, based on what we think they're all about or what drives their behavior, you know, we can get away with murder if in the name of relieving suffering. If in the name of mercy, we can say we should pull the plug or uh, allow for assisted suicide because we deem a person's life to lack quality. But with respect to ABA and special education and even restrictions that um, restrain certain students, those practices may seem barbaric until we can say something that justifies them like, well, we're protecting them from harming themselves or from harming others, and therefore they're justifiable. It's the same thing we've done for, you know, eons with women and gender stereotypes. You know, women, they're good at nurturing. (laughs) Therefore, they should stay home with the children. Justification. Um, You know, just as we were talking about, they don't feel pain. So why bother with pain medication if they're unfeeling machines or... Um, what are some other interesting ones? People, you know, during early eugenics movements thought everything was heritable. Everything was genetically based, criminality, alcoholism, all disabilities. And we now know that most disabilities are acquired from accidents. Um, and even some of the congenital conditions that you're born with aren't genetically determined. Um, they're a result of the lack of oxygen or something. But if people think 
certain populations are unintelligent or less intelligent because they're genetically inferior, well, why bother with educating them? There's no way that you're going to remediate. And, you know, sterilizing. Disabled people have been systematically sterilized and encouraged to not reproduce or are thought of as so dependent and needy that how could they be caregivers? They're the ones that are helpless and need help. How could they be helpers? You know, then we will you know, bypass considering hiring maybe a disabled person to be a caregiver or fail to recognize that that woman walk on, in a wheelchair walking next to that child is her mother. You know, if we don't think that disabled people are fit parents, which was one of the findings that we, uh, my team found in, in looking at the stereotypes of disabled women. Um, and there are there are a bunch of states where you uh, being being disabled ident- uh, automatically quali- qualifies you to have your parental rights revoked. Right. That was I read in in the book. Yeah. yeah. Even even though uh, intelligence is not a valid predictor of parenting, because so many things that we do when we parent involve the needs for social support, and people can people are better parents when they have family that is willing and able to assist with some of that caregiving. So, you know, the angry disabled man, you know, we, we is another stereotype that's may justify not hiring certain people if we assume they're just going to be, you know, irritable all day long. I think we do this in our everyday lives, regardless of whether we're thinking about a particular group. We justify our actions and our inactions on the basis of myths or beliefs that, you know, we've learned and that we may be able to unlearn. But I think the extent to which people become more aware of these ideologies that we have, meritocracy, you know, we get, everyone can get ahead if they just try hard enough. So it must be that these groups who are unemployed at a differential rate or uh, not breaking the glass ceiling, it must be because they're incapable or something. And so, you know, maybe there maybe meritoc- there's something wrong with these ideologies of meritocracy. And the other big ideological sort of way of thinking about this work is is so fundamental to disability studies. Forever people have thought of disability as something inside the body, the broken body, the the maladaptive mind. You know, we use these terms, these medicalized terms to think about disability as if it's a synonym for the impairments that one experiences, the, the blindness, the uh, hard of hearing uh, impairment, the dyslexia or the paralysis, and that that's the same thing as disability. And it's taken, you know, a, a movement of disabled people and their allies to really shift the paradigm around what is disability and how should we define disability? Is it the same thing as the impairment, and I would argue it is not, because you can be disabled by policies that fail to uh, include captions or braille as part of the curriculum. And so that's the reason you're not in college. Or you can be disabled by the steps that lead to a particular classroom, so you're not able to get in. Or by the attitudes, the attitudinal environment, and that the extent to which we can shift gears and begin to think of disability as uh, a function of man-made, environmentally built barriers that may systematically exclude certain types of bodies and minds from participating, from becoming executives, from marrying or becoming parents, that, you know, I think we have a better idea of how these ideologies of what even disability is drive where the solutions are. If they're in the body, take some medicine, you know, get some therapy. You can maybe be cured, or at least we can get rid of the symptoms that make you look so disabled and and, uh, make you look more normal or at least act more normal. But if we recognize through an ideology that sees the environment as responsible, at least in part for a lot of systematic exclusion, and by the environment, I mean the built environment, the policy environment, the legislative environment, then we can think about ways of changing policies to be more inclusive and therefore 
um, eliminate disabling barriers in some cases. We may not eliminate all disability or impairment, but you know, more people will be participating and therefore less likely to be excluded just because of a shift in the way that we frame our ideologies around what disability is. So, yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, what comes to mind there too, um, just quickly, I'd love any feedback or thoughts you have on this, is the the language, the medical language, right? And the esteem that we kind of give, the privilege that we give to, um, I don't know if we can say medical ideologies, but... um, the idea that once you're using language, and this happens, I think, a lot in ABA, like you're using this kind of language that justifies the means, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you really may be further contributing towards um, actually an, a, a, a negative experience outcome. I don't know if I would even go ahead and say disabling, but um, and, yeah. And I- I feel for family members, too, because it happens at that microcosm where if you are not familiar with disability studies or with these ideas about um, policy-based barriers, the fact that someone made a decision to build that playground the way they did with bark chips as opposed to a different kind of um, landing, then, you know, you are probably looking at your child. You don't want your child to get bullied or to be um, uninvited or unincluded. And so... You work to change your child. You teach them not to flap. You try to get them to make eye contact. That's what ABA, at least historically, was all about, so that they can participate in the way the world is. But if you realize that we can change the way the world is, the way we build our playgrounds, then we begin to see, oh, you know, it's, it's not that we need to fix the person, which is more visible. We see the person, especially people with visible conditions, and say, well, wouldn't it be nice if you could build a wheelchair that climbed steps? Well, wouldn't it be nice if we could get rid of the steps mm-hmm. you know, and just think about ways that everybody comes into the front door? But if people have a harder time imagining the changing of the environment that we can't see, mm-hmm. like the fish that can't see the water that it lives in. And yet we can change the rules. We can change the rules. We can lower the basketball net. We can right. um, change the width of the door. And, I, and I, I've just been, my life has been a, a series of trying to sort of make that case at every location or birthday party we've gone to. You know? <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thank you for taking that up in your life. Um <laughs> So um, moving on then to chapter four, cultural and impairment specific stereotypes. Um, so stereotypes are one of the more proximal causes of prejudice, as you put the, as you put it. Um, and this chapter is filled with some really astounding findings I felt from research, primarily a study conducted by you and students with disabilities. Um, But to just sort of stay for a second with how disability stereotypes function in education. So you write that stereotypes allow people to go beyond what they observe to predict how others, including themselves, are likely to behave. For example, if teachers expect students with disabilities to join their classes, they may anticipate accommodating their, quote, special needs and try to help them, quote, overcome presumed dependence. Later on, you get at what I think of as the the codependent aspect of a lot of the helping professions of which Mm -hmm. teaching is one, or perhaps what Samson in 1993 termed the serviceable other, which you also talk about in this chapter. Um, But you say, by stereotyping disabled people as dependent and weak, non-disabled people can consider themselves as helpful and strong. And I thought that was super powerful, especially being that I'm in the field of special education. So can you talk a little bit more about how disability stereotypes stereotypes work to perpetuate Mm -hmm. ableism within education? Okay. And just to back up just briefly, because I'm glad you mentioned proximal and distal. There's all these different reasons why we treat disabled people differently, right? So let's say, you know, I just have to mention this study. People have done studies to see whether people are willing to touch utensils and wear the clothing of of those who 
they learn uh, have either a mental illness or a particular disability or even cancer. And they become afraid that they're going to somehow catch these things, even though these are not contagious conditions, suggesting that there, you know, there may be some really deep rooted fears of contagion of conditions that aren't even contagious. You know, we're, we're afraid to be contaminated. And some of those things are so below the surface of our awareness, it's hard to even, you know, bring them to the fore to be able to fight against them or become aware of our, of our fears and our misinformation. But then the more proximal things that we learn through the media, through Disney, watching movies and um, hearing certain language, whether that language is that's so lame or, um, you know, we could talk about being uh, confined uh, to a wheelchair, suffering from certain things. You know, of course, people are going to make assumptions based on language, which is, which is a form of, of action. And so stereotypes, a couple different kinds, cultural stereotypes, we all learn them. We may not believe that they're true, that women are better at taking care of children because they're somehow nurturing and more emotional and, and men deserve to be breadwinners because they're more stoic or what have, macho, but we know they exist. And so just because they're, they're a part of our memory networks, they, they can influence us. They can influence what we notice and what we fail to notice because we expect a group of people to be dependent. We may not even notice when they're doing things that are more independent or interdependent. So then we have our personal stereotypes, our ones that we do believe to be true about a particular group. And those too can influence who we approach and how we um, give certain groups the benefit of the doubt and so forth. And in an education context, when a teacher you know, is trained in a separate program to be a special educator, they're not necessarily learning as their peers how all humans vary and that is this really a special population or is it a population whose civil rights have been denied? Because some, some argue in disability studies that the more we use the term special needs, the less people are likely to think of needs as human needs and as, uh, and as and civil rights to be able to procreate, to be able to attend school or um, whatever that right may be, vote. I mean, voting is restricted for so many disabled people because polls are inaccessible. And that's, you would think of that as a basic civil right. So I think just the way we educate teachers is sometimes problematic by um, siloing them and, and treating, and then, and then when you get into the classroom and uh, the gen ed teacher uh, is responsible for educating the kids, but they know they have this other teacher who's doing, because we have, you know, more inclusive classrooms, but maybe a kid with a disability raises his hand and it becomes not the general ed teacher's responsibility, but can you help him? You've got that special ed training. And so we just, you know, see further marginalization that way. But, you know, just growing up, having this daughter grow up in different school districts where she was more or less included, you sort of see it, see it on the front lines that yeah. everyone wants to help her. She is the icon of helplessness. She has a wheelchair. Kids, certain kids want to roll, push her. And, you know, she just wants to be treated like other kids. So she tended to gravitate toward those who did, you know, not want to be so uh, patronizing or, or imposing of help. And no one ever really asked her, to my knowledge, to be the person that helped them, yeah. except in certain contexts, like when, when she would go to roller rinks and kids were learning just for the first time how to roller skate, and they realized they could hold on to the back of her chair. And here she was, this stable force that was wheeling around this rink. And she became the helper for, for the first time. But you really have to cre create and come up creatively with these opportunities as teachers to be inclusive in ways that don't signal to your kids who may experience invisible or even visible conditions that they are part of your class. You know, they would, in some cases, when she was younger, take her out of her chair and put her in a regular kid chair for the school picture. And what does that communicate to a kid? You know, we don't want people to see this piece of equipment that we've learned is confining or that you're, um, what's the other word, uh, confined to a wheelchair, bound. Right. Wheelchair bound. Oh, people right, say that right. as if it's just something... 
And if that's what teachers have learned, they, uh, of course, they may think, you know, let's, let's normalize her and give her a chance to just be part of the class by taking her out of that. Well, for my daughter, her wheelchair was a liberating piece of technology that allowed her to be hands-free and to, you know, wheel around and do things that she couldn't do before when she was dragging around like her walker and she couldn't use her hands. So those kind of things, I think, just the playground issue too, that some playgrounds she found herself on were barrier-free playgrounds that didn't have bark chips where she could wheel to the swings and transfer. And that was just her particular case and, and play. And if you're not able to do that, do you end up in a side room doing, doing crafts while all your other friends are playing? Or if you're, if you grow up where people think, you know, more therapy is better. So we offer you this kind of therapy and this kind of pull out service. And, you know, it's time to do this resource room when the other kids are playing and developing friendships and learning social skills, you know, you're further disabling those kids from learning how to be helpers. And, and even in my own daughter's case, and I think she wouldn't mind me sharing this too, because we've had lots of conversations, you know, there's learned helplessness when you do too much for a kid, they come to expect that, you know, maybe I shouldn't try that because I'm just going to screw it up. Right. Um, so I'll just let somebody do it for me first. I think we see that with members of minority groups, even on, on at the college level, we overhelp, we assume incompetence instead of assuming competence right. because of the way things are set up based on these media stereotypes and personal stereotypes and narratives that we grow up with. It's so important to teach, to give kids access to these, the alternative press, kind of like what you're doing with the new books podcast too, but there are all these books for kids now that really do disrupt some of those traditional gender stereotypes and ability stereotypes and I was keeping a list for a while because I was like, you know, we, we were going on the road, my daughter and I, to try to educate at every grade level during multicultural night. Disability can be considered a culture. And let's share with kids that there are some famous people that they might, you know, recognize we're a part of their community and they can be proud of that and not always afraid to say that they too experience X, Y, or Z. So I'll leave, well, I'll leave. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, cause I know that, as you said, you're sharing your story and your daughter's story, um, in order to speak on education. So just thank you for that. I, th I found that really powerful. So I guess just to sort of, um, get to the, the last two chapters, which I think get at what we're so often, you know, um, craving, uh, which is what do we do? <laughs> What do we do about this? It's part of our productive oriented society and culture, right? Um, but the last three chapters are called Interventions to Reduce Prejudice and mm -hmm. Promoting Social Change and Disability Justice. So, um, you know, I'd love to hear anything that you kind of want to share about those, but I'll just offer that one of the most interesting things for me, given my own positionality as a professor working in special education with teachers, um, has to do with reducing prejudice amongst uh, what are called, I guess, bystanders or mm. non-targets uh -huh. who might potentially be allies and advocates in the struggle for equal rights, equitable opportunity, and universal dignity. So what kind of interventions or, you know, as you were writing these chapters, um, is there anything that you feel really optimistic about or, um, yeah, go for it. Well, first I'll, I'll give a little plug for yeah. someone that you need to um, – get on your radar, my colleague, Diana Pastorek-Carson. She has done some of this in um, elementary schools. Ability awareness is her uh, oh, program. And, cool. and it's been really, I mean, she's been a, I've been a mentor to her in terms of the disability study stuff. We've gone back and forth, just kind of cross fertilizing each other's work. But she, um, you know, has really tried to put this in practice because so many interventions historically at employment offices and in education settings have been around trying to increase empathy by simulating or getting kids to imagine what it's like. And I think that comes from a good place because people that can empathize that can really say, well, what is it like for you as opposed to, um, you know, me observing your life? 
there have been studies that show that you can improve attitudes, not just even toward the person that you're empathizing with, but toward their broader group by just taking their perspective. But it goes a little bit further when you're putting people in a wheelchair for a day, putting blindfolds on folks so that you are trying to give people this experience, but no one was really evaluating whether it worked. And so now we have several studies done that shows it can actually backfire and that people are like, wow, this is what disability is like. That sucks. I've I've, I've rolled around in a chair for a day. I was frustrated. I couldn't go uphill. I don't have any of the coping strategies that my disabled peers have had living in this condition or this with this situation for a while. I know that I'm going to get up and this seems like kind of a, a game. Um, and so I think while well-intentioned, we have now pretty well documented that this can lead to unwanted fears. Uh, people start worrying about themselves being come, be, becoming disabled and, and they don't want to think about that. So they're more likely to avoid people in the future. Uh, they're less likely to want to get involved in disability rights and improving access at their schools after simulating disability. Or, and that includes psychiatric conditions where you try to simulate hallucinations, for example. It's fascinating to people so they get to have this vicarious experience but others are suggesting that maybe we should really be thinking about giving people empathy by having them talking to real life disabled people or maybe even (laughs) virtually using a wheelchair in a gaming situation and seeing how the barriers uh, in an environment might be problematic and not so much that you're wheeling around or your legs don't walk. So I think some of those studies are interesting, but you brought up bystanders and allies, and I'm really excited about the confrontation research. It's looking at some bystander intervention work where allies are actually sometimes more influential. They may not be members of the particular minority group. So when they speak up, their peers are more likely to give them credence. They're more influential. Um, they don't seem to have a vested interest because it's not about their group. And they can, and, and if they're practiced and brave enough to sort of speak out, which I find less and less with certain students' populations, even in college, every year it seems like people, I don't want to get involved. You know, it's not my business. I don't want to offend anyone. And surely there are um, barriers to speaking up to not being a passive bystander. People might be afraid of their own safety if they, you know, draw the attention of, a, of, a, of an authority figure to sure. the fact that they're being ableist. But in some ways, if we can practice that and incorporate that into the curriculum, kids with and without disabilities can become much more um, fluent at saying things that they wish they would have said in the moment because they didn't think of it, or they were like a deer in the headlights. So people say things all the time to disabled people with visible conditions in particular, like, what's wrong with you? And, you know, like my daughter would would start to disrupt that by saying uh, nothing, you know, what's wrong with you? Or that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. People talk yeah. to the person that's with the disabled person and don't address their comments to the person, or maybe, you know, we'll talk to the interpreter and not even make right. eye contact. Right. And and we have to sort of practice people at how that's problematic or they talk really slowly or with baby talk to older adults and to people with disabilities who may be professionals who, you know, have to correct them. And and I'm not immune. I've made my uh, plenty of mistakes throughout my lifetime sure. of trying to signal to people that, hey, I'm an ally and you know, been corrected. And so, mm-hmm. and you have to be willing to engage in difficult dialogues and to be, hold yourself accountable. So I think the, there is empirical research out there that shows that if you speak up, if you, and it doesn't have to be hostile or aggressive, it can be just tell me more about that. Why do you think, why do you think that? Here's a great example. People, even close friends of mine have said things like, man, if I ever become disabled, shoot me. You know, just, I just can't handle it. If someone else has to take care of my bathrooming needs, I just don't even want to be around anymore. Right. And I've had to challenge them on that, you know, first by saying, you know, who, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> this is what I do for a living. And, you know, you know my daughter. 
we are terrible predictors of our own ability to adjust to Mm -hmm. challenging life circumstances. We adapt. And, you know, if you have a do not resuscitate order and you get into an accident and you're not able to speak, you know, you may have a very different attitude about people wanting to pull the plug on you because you're not the person they thought they knew as their son or their daughter or their partner. When in fact, you just want to live and be given the opportunity to get used to this and, and figure out how to navigate um, resilience going forward. But yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought there. Well, and, and, and change is a part of life. And that's the other thing that I think people often maybe don't um, understand was that disability is something, right, that one can experience from birth, right, or as, as a result of something that occurs um, later in life. So um, yeah, most of us will be. And so right. some people do like thinking about ableism as a as an abilities ability-based discrimination that anybody can be discriminated against on the basis of ability. And would the ADA cover that, even if the person doesn't claim disability identity? Um, I mean, I think that's an interesting way to sort of think about it. I think some of the framers of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, had that in mind when writing up how people can be discriminated against on the basis of ability. And I know we didn't even get to talk about intersectionality and how some people mean well by saying things like, oh, you know, they broke the law, but let's not write them a ticket because they're disabled or let's let them win or you're so inspirational. And and sometimes people really bristle at that too because they you know, they want to be treated like everybody else and we should hold people accountable. Right. Um, but I, I do want to say one thing about intersectionality because I feel like in 2014, I know it was probably, there was, there was scholarship, but I was less thinking about, I was thinking still very categorically and how I wanted to talk about the research on how our categorical thinking is limited and how we want to put people in these boxes. And if you're disabled that, and I'm not, and, and your stereotype is dependent, that means I get to think of myself as independent. And if you're asexual, you know, that means I get to be sexual or whatever it might be that we, the serviceable other idea that we need certain groups to pick up the trash. We need certain groups to be deemed the nurturers so other groups get to be the executives. It just makes it nice and clean and easy. And I'm not saying this is the way it should be. But as I have learned more about how we all have intersectional identities and oppressions and, and why do we continue to sort of simplistically provision, you know, Disability Awareness Month huh. is October. It competes with Latino Heritage huh. Month. And then we've got Black History Month. And so we continue to just almost like we can only handle one minority group at a time. It's either sort of like, is this, is this a black issue? Is this a white issue? But I think there's real hope to come back to your interventions idea that we're in thinking about what we have in common with others on the basis of our intersecting group memberships. There's a place for identity politics and for recognizing that some people, we can't all say, you know, we're all disabled in some way, you know, let's sing Kumbaya, <sighs> because some people are disabled much more pervasively by society and by the way they're treated and may need to qualify for certain kinds of accommodations. But there's another approach out there, this sort of universal design approach, where if we thought about human variation and intersecting um, ways of being in the world, we could find commonalities with one another that are not necessarily, well, you're you're either in my group or you're not. And I'm going to automatically like those that are part of my sort of family of in-group memberships and even without intending, you know, be less amenable to those that aren't. So I think we're, we, even here at Hiram College, we recently had a speaker come on and talk to us about supporting uh, LGBTQ plus community. And they did a great job on really making comparisons between, you know, disabled LGBT folks and people who have these intersecting oppressions and how they're even more likely to be um, excluded or have disparities that they're confronting and how we need to change it up with our programming on campus to 
to complexify our curriculum, decolonize our syllabi and think about what we have in common and where we may not have things in common. And that's okay too. We don't always have to have the same experiences, but that doesn't mean we discount those as invalid if we haven't had that particular experience. Or it doesn't mean we have to appropriate it by wearing a blindfold all day to <laughs> learn about the experience of blindness and what what is beneficial about it and what is difficult about it and how people have navigated it by talking to people in the community. That's what my colleague Diana does a lot of, with, you know, bringing people into her kindergarten classrooms to sort of meet folks uh, with various impairments and introduce kids early on to, the, the, to, to break the stereotypes. So that's, it's exciting work. And we try to allude to some of that in the activist chapters too, where people who read a chapter about the sources of ableism and then get disheartened, you know, there's something they can do about it by looking into, you know, other resources. Yes. And I know we're kind of at time, but I do just sort of want to quickly plug and maybe we can end with that or anything else that you kind of want to leave us with. But every chapter ends with activist pages, um, which is a unique, I think, way to structure the book. Um, so any anything you want to tell us about maybe that also might connect to, to whatever else you might be working on these days or whatever the uh, future holds for this particular book? Yeah, I, you know, at one point I wanted to really have a companion book where people had activities um, and maybe that's something to think about on the horizon. I had students working on those activist pages, students with disabilities. And so they have ownership on a lot of that. But I wanted to include things like cartoons that were more appealing to teaching this heavy stuff to undergraduates or even to, you know, kids in elementary school. Um, resources for people who may know parents with disabilities but not have the ability to imagine that you know, you can ha- you can buy a changing table that isn't of a certain height. It can be a, a lower height, or um, so products kind of references and where you hashtags, so social media things that you can follow to learn more about insiders and insiders with disabilities and what they have to say about their experience. So you can disrupt these ideas that it's a tragic experience as opposed to a, a very um, I mean, I'm not discounting the difficulties that some people do face because of discrimination or maybe pain or impairment-specific things, but people don't realize, no one really talks about or writes papers for their school projects about the disability rights movement as one uh, an important social movement or writes about uh, disability culture and, and art and how people have used their mouths as a way to paint and you know, we, we try to do some of that here at Hiram with some of our classes to get students to kind of get into the topic through their own passion, whether that's gaming and science fiction and how disability is represented there to social media platforms and how they can create their own media platforms. We had a group of students doing a, uh, what was it called? It was something on Facebook where they identified as a disabled person, but then listed all the other identities that they had too in interest. Mm. And again, to kind of complexify this, this monolithic set of beliefs that all disabled people are X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff we've got. With, there's poems, there's suggestions for future research. So graduate students can pick up the book and certainly pick up on so many things that have yet to be quantified, uh, and in my own work, I'm trying to broaden out and do more work at Hiram College on diversity, access, equity, and inclusion, you know, first by recognizing that we have a critical mass of students of color, students with disabilities, and people who intersect both of those who are also sexual minorities, and what are their needs? And are we teaching them in ways that reflect our own prejudices or even just privileged ways of teaching because it worked for us in the past? to be a sage on the stage, for example, but are we, you know, looking into best practices of universal design to provide things in multiple formats and then assess whether more students retain because they feel more welcome. They're not excluded. Do we really have to ask everyone to stand? You know, can we 
encourage all, all faculty to turn on captions, which turn out studies show benefit the learning of you know people who have full hearing capacity. Um, so I think some people just are, maybe fail to imagine the possibilities. And I think a lot of what the book tries to do and what I'm trying to do going forward is to, is to implement. Implement, share resources, and encourage teachers and faculty to try one thing, just one different thing in their class that maybe they find from the book or from some of these amazing websites that are mentioned in the book um, and, and get their students to, to think about ability as part of human variation and disability as part of multicultural the, the, the landscape that we all are a part of. And I'm hopeful because I do think as colleges in particular struggle to find more and more students that the, the generation is shrinking and everyone's competing, are going to have to get creative and recognize who their constituents are now and how to best meet them where they are. Well, on that note of imagining and implementing better futures, I want to thank you sincerely for being on the show today with us and sharing some of what makes your book an important resource in a world full of information. Um, so thanks again. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you. Take care. You too.